Heavenly Father, you know as always, I'm just a little child, but you, O oh Lord, are my Father. I am the clay and you are my potter, and I am the work of your hands. Lord, I pray this morning that you would set me aside and lay me low and that you alone would be exalted, that your ways would be beautiful before our eyes, and that you would be with those listening uh, here live and those listening um, via 3ABN or over the internet. Father, that just every hearer would not hear me, but that they would hear the words of Jesus to them. Whatever our individual needs are this morning, that you would minister to them through your word. You are our God and we exalt you. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. Thank you most of all for Jesus. It's his name we ask. Amen. So if you looked in your um, program, it said the Sabbath school lesson study is for this morning what I'm giving you. And it's too bad, really, that we can't actually have a Sabbath school discussion because I was just so touched and moved by the, the lesson study this week. This whole quarterly has been just wonderful. Um, and if any of you did not study the lesson study this week, that's certainly no condemnation because it's easy to, there's so much out there to, to read so much to pack into our devotions that maybe some of you didn't get a chance to study it. If you didn't, I would appeal to you to just go back and study it just to receive the blessing yourself because it is just beautiful. But it's too bad that we're not in our own little local churches that we could just, or here, just break up and have discussion because there's so many practical things. Since we can't do that, and since you're just going to have to listen to a monologue from me, I'm just going to share with you some of the things that I learned from this week's Sabbath school. What God has impress my heart with. And I would just appeal to you as you listen to it to just think about the truths of the Word of God as we're brought out in this week's lesson study and how he may want to apply that to your life, even as he has challenged me to apply it to my life. So to start out, let's, let's turn to the Gospel of John in your Bibles. John chapter 1. And we're going to go to verse 14. This is a very familiar verse to all of us, but it is so incredibly rich and deep and profound. Let's seek to listen to it and, and to read it with new ears and eyes. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That sentence touches me so much, or that, that, that phrase, full of grace and truth. So the main idea of behind redemption is this drawing close. You think about the, the, the very beginning when iniquity entered our universe. Here we have Lucifer, who is the closest to God of any created being. God created him specifically to be the closest of any other created being to God, the anointed cherub who covered, the one who walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire, the one who beheld the ceaseless glory pouring off of God, the one that knew him better than anyone else. And, you know, as we read in, in, in the Bible and in the Desire of Ages, Ellen White describes very poignantly how 
Lucifer left when he's cherishing these ideas of his own importance, which how do you cherish ideas of your own importance in front of God? Iniquity is a mystery. But as he's cherishing these ideas of his own importance and he's disgruntled that Christ had gotten, you know, this, gotten exalted and, 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 and all these things that had happened, he's, he's frustrated about this. So he leaves the presence the immediate presence of God. And he goes out and he starts spreading dissension amongst the angels. And think about the, the power of his arguments because the angels have, A, never been lied to in all of their existence. They don't even understand the concept of a lie. So here comes Lucifer, the one being in the universe who is closest to God, the one being who stands in his presence. He starts saying things about the character of God and how our freedom is over and this and that and the other. And the angels who have never been lied to, they're like, Lucifer, Lucifer is closer to God than, any of, than anybody else. How can you discredit what Lucifer has to say? And his, his, his lies took a tremendous amount of, of, of power there in heaven. Then he comes down to earth, and Adam, who was also created close to God, not as close as Lucifer was, obviously he was created, he was here on earth, but he had, to, he was, had the blessing and the privilege of visits of God and of the angels. He starts out not as close as Lucifer, but closer than we are, starts out closer, and then this, he, makes, he makes the same choice essentially that, that Lucifer made, certainly at a different level because Lucifer had a different uh, amount of knowledge. But he also chooses to turn away, to leave the presence of God. And then 6,000 years later, you fast forward to us, and we start out far away from him. But then the idea of redemption as clarified through the Bible, is that God says, we're going to draw close again. We started close, and that separation occurred. Now we're, st now we're starting with a separation, and we're going to draw close again to see that if human beings can get back close enough to God that they can see, obviously not with our actual vision, but through the eyes of faith, if we can see God and understand who he is, that maybe we'll decide to ditch this sin thing to draw close again, but of course we can't get back to God, so what does he do? The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And he did it even before he came to earth, practically, right? He said, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, let them make me a sanctuary so that I can do what? Dwell among them, so that I can be amongst them, so that we can be near each other, we can, we can, we can mingle with each other, we can be around, that there's this closeness, not you know, them down here and I up there, and there's this great gulf in between, no, so that we can be close. This concept of drawing close, it's the bottom line idea of redemption. So then, God becomes Emmanuel, God with us. I mean, he always was. But he does it in a way that we can understand. He comes to live on this earth. He was in the world, and the world was what? Made by him. And the world knew it not. Phenomenal. He was in the world, and the world was made by him. Everything he could see, made by him, and the world knew it not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. This is where it's so profoundly beautiful to me, that when he became flesh and dwelt among us, there's this parenthetical thought in that verse, in verse 14, the one we read, John 1, 14. There's this parenthetical thought that says, we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father. And that parenthetical thought is so profound that I think it can sometimes distract us from the thought of the verse minus the parenthetical thought. Now, I mean, you don't want to re remove it entirely, but, the, but if you read the sentence minus the parenthetical thought, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace 
and truth. His dwelling amongst us was full and characterized by this. Grace and truth. Grace and truth in every interaction, in every word, in every thought, in everything that he did, it was grace and truth. It was defined by it. I am profoundly blessed. And this is what he desires us to now do, right? He says at the very end of his life, after he's washed the disciples' feet, he's like, listen, I have left you an example. And if washing Judas' feet is not the epitome of grace and truth, what is? But after he finishes this, he gets up and he's like, listen, I have left you an example so that you should do as I have done. Translation, the way I have lived among you, the way I have served you, this is the way you are now, we are now called to live amongst each other, amongst the world, amongst those that don't know his name, just the way he lived amongst us. And he says, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Grace and truth. I am blessed to be married to a wonderful, wonderful man whose life has redefined grace and truth to his wife. Profoundly blessed. And just a week ago Friday, so a week from yesterday, it had been an ordinary Friday. I was at home, and I was, um, it was af- late afternoon now, and I was cleaning the, cleaning the house, and we live in this absolutely adorable tiny house in Tennessee, in the beautiful rolling hills of Middle Tennessee. Incredible life there. Anyway, I love my tiny house with all my heart. And so I was in there and I was cleaning it and putting fresh cut flowers out and just delighting in my little home. And my honey was outside somewhere working and so I was looking forward to when he got back. And it was about 45 minutes before, an hour, 45 minutes before um, we were going to have our sundown worship. And I was just wrapping up there. And I went over for some reason to pick up my phone, it was on the kitchen counter, and I picked up my phone, and on my phone there was a text from my mother, which she had sent some time before, but I hadn't seen it, letting me know that one of the most important people in the world to me had died. Two words, so-and-so, she put the name, died. Little emoticon with tears coming down. I'm looking at my phone, and it was perfectly unreal to me. I'm like, how can, how can that be true? How can that be for real? Six months ago, she was at my wedding. She was in my wedding. I never got to write her a thank you note for the last most beautiful gift she had ever given to me. This is a person that is one of the most important people to me on earth. And I never got to say goodbye to her at my wedding because of all the, you know, the busyness of trying to get out of the reception. So many people there to say goodbye to and trying to get out to take pictures before the sun set out in the snow. And now, so I never got to say goodbye to her at my wedding and now she's gone. You you mean to tell me I'm never going to see her again? And I was just like perfectly numb. I was like, how... It was like 100% unreal to me. So I set the phone down, and I started going back to just finish the last touches on my house, but then I couldn't do that either. So I'm just sort of standing here in this state of perfect limbo. And then I'm like, well, this is true. I want to find out how. So I pick up my phone to FaceTime my mom. And I FaceTimed my mom, and when 
her face showed up on the screen of my iPhone. Her face was streaked with tears. And the, the combination of seeing her face streaked with tears, and at that moment, my husband opened the door and walked in. And between that combination of his presence and her face, I dissolved. And for the next, I don't even know how long, the, the, the rest of the cleaning in my house did not get done. I was almost done anyway, but it did not get done. And I was lying on my bed trying to wrap my mind around this reality that she was gone and I would never see her again. With zero closure. Zero closure. And as the evening wore on, we had our sundown worship, but of course I'm totally like emotionally out of whack now. And a couple other things happened that evening that were unrelated to the loss of this precious person, but and, and, and unrelated, frankly, to my, my, my husband, and, and it was certainly not his fault, but a couple things happened that in my already very hyper-emotional state really bothered me. And in that state of so-and-so is dead, I cannot believe this, and I cannot handle this, and this is too much for me, I had no warning that she was going to die, and, and anyway, needless to say, long story short, I ended up being quite difficult with my husband. And allowing the, the, the little things, really, that bothered me to just bother me, and I was refusing to be comforted, and I was just generally being difficult. And my husband was so gracious and kind. And you say, well, you know, of course he was gracious and kind to you if you just lost somebody that was super important to you. But listen, even if you lose someone that was incredibly important to you, that's no reason to be difficult with your spouse. And he was just so gentle and so kind that it really broke my heart. And the next morning as I was, you know, praying about it and everything, I was really convicted I shouldn't have been difficult with him. There was nothing he did wrong. There was no, and I, it wasn't that I thought that there was something he did wrong. It was just hyper-emotional that night before. And so I went back to him and I was like, you know, sweetheart, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for being difficult. And he smiled at me and he wrapped his arms around me and he said something to me I'll never forget. He said, honey... Don't even worry about it. At moments like that, I love to pray for you. Grace and truth. And grace and truth are what enable us to impact another life with blessing. Whether it's someone in our family, it's what impacts us and enables it's what impacts them and enables us to lead them to Jesus Christ. It's what enables my husband to lead me to Jesus Christ the night that I've lost somebody that's one of the most precious people to me on earth. Grace and truth. And that's the way we reach out to our family, it's the way we reach out to our church, and it's the way we reach out to the public in a society from which grace and truth have seemingly evaporated. It is what God is calling us to display to one another. So, Continuing on, I think it was on Monday in the lesson, there was this, it, it presented three, three, the three parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost boy. And Jesus gave those parables as a response to the concept of the, you know, the Pharisees coming along, and they're like, well, you eat with publicans and sinners, this is you know, a very negative thing. They're upset about this, and Jesus gives this as a response. He gives these three parables, lost sheep, lost coin, lost boy. And when he gives these three parables, at the end of each parable, he gives like this concluding synopsis statement of that parable, and then he moves into the next parable. And each synopsis statement gets increasingly uh, strong in its, in its conclusion. And then at the end of all the three parables, he's basically like, so yes, I do eat with publicans and sinners. First, first parable, he gives lost sheep. When he comes to the end of that parable, he, he makes the statement that 
the one sinner who repents is more precious in heaven than the 99 who do not need repentance. Then he gives the next par- parable, the one of the lost coin. You can find these in, Matt, uh, in Luke chapter 15. He gives them the parable of the lost coin, and he makes a, a stronger statement at the end of that uh, parable, and he says that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. And I would like you to wrap your mind with me for a moment around that concept that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. And we're so accustomed to that verse that we're like, oh yes, they're thankful for one sinner that repents. But I would like you to wrap your mind around this as I have, as God called me to do in a very practical and personal sense. Do you realize that in the moment, look back over your life and in the moments when you gave your heart to Christ or you made a particular surrender or you let go of something that you had been holding on to or, 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 or at your baptism or anything like this, just think back over your life as I have thought back over my life and realize that over at those junctures, these angels, these cherubim, these seraphim, seraphim's name means the burning one, that are tremendous incredible creatures that are created for the glory of God. They stand in the presence of God and say, holy, 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 six wings, one covering their face so that they don't just directly gaze into the glory of God. The ones that, like I mentioned with Lucifer, the, the Bible says, walk up and down amidst the stones of fire. They rejoice when just one of us, when I, when you, repent. They rejoice. Ellen White has this profound, you should go and read it, and I don't remember now the reference. I was reading it just yesterday morning, and my eyes just filled with tears. This profound statement where she says that, I mean, of course, she says that each of us, as, as the children of God, have an angel with us, right? And then she said, which we're, we're all accustomed to that concept, but then she says that when one of us become discouraged or we weep, that that angel flies quickly to heaven and tells that news there, and that the angels cease to sing. When one of us becomes discouraged and weeps, the highest principalities and powers of heaven cease to sing in sympathy. Profound. Profound. And then she goes on to say that Christ will send another angel to come back and support and encourage and seek to lead us to Christ. And that if that soul then continues to, refuses to turn their eyes to Jesus and continues down the wrong path, that angel will go back to heaven and will tell it in heaven and that the angels will look sad. And then she says, and they weep. And then at the end of them weeping, they say, amen. This is incredible. This is incredible. They weep, but then she says, but if that person will turn around and they will turn and look to Jesus Christ and they will be brought into the narrow, uh, into the narrow way again, then that news gets carried to heaven and the angels sing hallelujah and they, they, they touch their harps and heaven's arches ring with music. Is it profound or is, not prof- is it not profound? Can our hearts be touched that the fact when I picked up my phone and I saw that one of the most important people on earth had died, and my heart was incredibly discouraged, and I wept. Can it not be profound that in heaven, in that moment, there was silence? That the angels ceased to sing because I was weeping? How does this happen? 
there is joy. And Jesus, knowing this because he had been in heaven, he says, listen, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner, one sinner that repents. Yes, I eat with publicans and sinners. This is what Jesus was giving this parable in response to, right? Yes, I eat with publicans and sinners. And if our hearts can even beat a little bit in unison with heaven, we will know the value of a soul. We will know the value of our own soul that we cannot be playing around with our own salvation. We need to be working it out with fear and trembling. We need to be on our knees before God because the loss of one soul is a tragedy. It's a tragedy beyond what we can compute. And if we feel the, the feeling of the heart of heaven, then the soul that is walking down the street that looks like they don't care a hoot about God our hearts will care too because the principalities and powers of heaven will rejoice if that one soul will repent. They are sad when that one soul is sad. They are glad when that one soul is glad. What is the grace of God just leaves me speechless. And then Jesus proceeds from that already phenomenal statement and then he proceeds to give the parable of the prodigal son, the lost boy. And at the end of that, he's basically like, look, the father is standing at a great way off looking to see when is he going to turn around? When is he going to come and runs and throws his arm around? The father himself loves you. The father himself rejoices over you with singing. What must it be when Jehovah sings? Over the salvation of one of us. And if we can connect with the heart of heaven about this, will we not care about the salvation of those around us? So as I was studying this quarterly, which is about mingling with other people and desiring their good, I was sitting on my bed, and um, because I said, as I said, we live in a tiny house, and so every bit of space is precious. So our bed is up against the wall, and I sleep right next to the part that's up against the wall. And on that whole side of the wall on our bed is a really large window that my parents gifted us when we were, were remodeling our tiny house. And so, like, basically, the, that entire side of my, that, basically, that entire wall, the length of our bed, is just glass. And it is beautiful because outside of that window, there's this beautiful green field that slopes down and slopes back up and disappears into the woods. And the deer love to come every morning and sometimes in the evening as well. And they play in that field and eat. And great. So I love sitting there and just having my devotions looking out over this field. So I was thinking about the quarterlies. I was sitting there in my bed, just looking out over the, the peaceful green. And I was thinking, you know, the concept of mingling is not a new concept, right? I mean, we all know that Jesus did it. We all know that he mingled with others as one who desired their good, that, you know, he ministered to their needs, won their confidence, made them follow me. We've all heard this. It's not a new concept. And probably to one extent or another, uh, probably all of us have done it. <laughs> you know, some of us more, maybe some of us less, but all of us have done it to some one extent or another. So I was thinking, what, you know, we're studying this. I'm studying this, and I know it's important, and I, I value it, and I've done it. But what is going to give this mingling the power that the mingling had when Christ did it? Because Christ was no ordinary humanitarian who was just amongst men as one that, you know, he wanted their good, he wanted their benefit. It wasn't just habitat for humanity, you know, as good as giving habitats for humanity is, but it wasn't just that. Jesus was not an ordinary 
humanitarian? What's going to transform my mingling amongst people, and especially those who don't know Christ, into the powerful thing that it was in the life of Christ? So I was pondering this thought, and I was praying, and I was saying, Lord, you know, this is not a new concept, and it's not going to be a new concept really to anybody that I share it with, yes, you know, grace and truth and that love for one another and to recognize the value of a soul and our, the preciousness of every single soul in the eyes of heaven. But what is going to unleash this mingling to have real power in the world around us? And as I was sitting there, this verse came to mind. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. It's a familiar one. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be made rich. My husband, when he's speaking, he often says this, what proves love to be genuine? Let's say there's, there's a man and he tells a woman that he loves her. How does she know that that is true? If he purchases her a bunch of stuff, does that make it true? Can she know concretely if he purchases her a bunch of really expensive stuff, if he gives her flowers, if he buys her perfume, if he buys her all this stuff, can she know concretely that when he says that he loves her that it is true? Not necessarily, right? There's been plenty of people that have bought a lot of other stuff for other people that did not have true unselfish love for them. What if he wants her with him all the time? Does that prove that his love is true? Does it? Not necessarily. If he does truly love her, he probably will want her you know, with him, but it could also mean that he's very controlling. So it doesn't necessarily mean that his love is true. What if he's attracted to her sexually? Does that mean that his love is true? Again, not necessarily. Could be, could be not, right? In this degenerate age. So how can love be proven true? One way, sacrifice and suffering. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that for our sakes, though he was rich, yet he became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. 1 Peter 2.21, for even here unto were ye called, were we called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Let me ask you a question, because this is the exact question God asked me when I was sitting on my bed, obviously through the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. How can you know that you love the world around you? Just because we give something monetarily for them? Does that prove that we love them? Just because we mingle amongst them, does that prove that we love them? There is one way that our love for the souls for whom Christ died can be proven. It is the exact, exact same way that Christ himself proved his love, and that is through sacrifice and suffering. Hereunto were ye called. Christ suffered for us, leaving us what? An example 
that we should follow in his steps. So my wonderful little beautiful tiny home tucked in the rolling hills, a beautiful rolling hills of Tennessee that I love so much. And when I step out of my tiny house, there's this sloping green lawn. And then when I get down, there's my garden. Let me tell you, there is more organic produce in that garden than we can eat times I don't even know how many. And so I go down, and the average time between when I pick, pick produce the, the food that I eat out of my garden and when I actually eat it is probably maybe half an hour to 45 minutes. It is so fresh. It is so good. It is such an ideal life. I don't pay, like, my grocery bill is like this because I eat high-quality organic produce out of my garden. I love it. I love the beauty around me. We live right near Paul's family. I love my family. I love my relatives. I love seeing my family when I come to a place like this. I live a beautiful life. I live an ideal life. So how do I prove that I love the world around me? Let me tell you what God has been telling me. Child, you need to be willing to suffer for someone. Not some kind of penance where we need to whip ourselves, but that we need to be willing to give ourselves up enough to actually suffer. That's what Christ did. Christ was not an ordinary humanitarian, as I said. The reason why his mingling amongst us was with such power is because he gave up so much to do it. And when you're willing to suffer that much for someone else... Your love is not a lie. And it is that love that gives your mingling so much power. First John, chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from where? It's of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. This is a somewhat alarming statement if we are having issues amongst our church, fellow church members and disagreeing with them and not loving them. He that loveth not knoweth not God. Perhaps the conversion in our own souls needs to go a little bit deeper because God is love. But then he goes on to clarify what this love is like. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Then he repeats it. Herein is, we, herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, or if God loved us in this way, we ought also to love one another. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray we would understand what grace and truth are. I pray that we would understand how precious one soul is in the eyes of God. And I pray that you would enable us, Father, to love as you love, to walk as you walked, and to follow the example that you set out for us. We love you. Thank you for the Sabbath. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.